Hi, this is Ray Crapo from Icon Motorsport. You're listening to the Sound Rider Show. And now live from the Crow's Nest Studio in beautiful downtown Broadview, Washington, join us for the latest episode of the Sound Rider Show. A candid hour featuring the people, places, and things that make up the fabric of one of the top motorcycle riding destinations in the world. And now here are your hosts, Tom Marin, Derek Roberts, and whoever else happens to drop by today. Greetings, riders, and welcome to the October 2015 edition of the Sound Rider Show, show number 1510. we got a lot of good stuff going on on the show today. Derek, tell us about our special guest we're going to have. Yes, yeah, some great interviews coming up. We have Pat Hahn, excuse me, Pat Hahn, who is the Communications and Outreach Manager for Team Oregon. Of course, they do all the motorcycle rider training down in the great state of Oregon. Also have Joanne and Bob Gerbing who are uh, in charge of Gordon's Heated Clothing, who specialize in uh, motorcycle heated clothing, of course. And uh, they've got some great, great products. They joined us down at the Rally in the Gorge. We really look forward to talking to them about some of the latest developments in their product line and, of course, maybe get a few tips for riding here in the winter season. Yeah. And uh, I just got back from uh, a little three-day trip. I did my uh, hydrotherapy Tour. So now the big question I have for you is, before we get into the details of the Hydro Tour, is where uh, or what bike were you on here? Were you on the NC700? I was on the NC700X, right. and it was just, I just love that motorcycle. Yeah, you know, I hear a lot of great things about it. One of the best deals in the motorcycling world, certainly. Yeah, and so I, uh, I didn't do any camping this time. I did all different locations that had lodging. Right. So I... Um, I went to uh, the Grand Lodge in Forest Grove and soaked in the Japanese pool there. And then I went to uh, the Belknap Hot Springs and soaked in both of their pools there on the McKenzie River. That sounds like a pretty good time. I wonder why you had a little extra bounce in your step here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, how many miles in all did you put on on the NC7? I don't know. Uh, but uh, what I do know is I didn't, I didn't like, drive... 500 miles a day mm-hmm. i rode like 200 miles a day so it was really relaxing yeah because i'd get up in the morning from say like forest grove and uh and take a have breakfast and take a soak and then put everything on the bike and i ended up leaving there like at 9 30 in the morning or something um and then i uh you know i'd get out to the hot spring the next place uh yeah. in the afternoon and i'd unload and and get everything the way I wanted in my room, go down and take a soak again. Now, did you stick to some of the main roads, or did you do any uh, dirt or back roads while you were going through here? I did a lot of back roads. Nice. So yeah. I used um, sections that we used back in 2013 on the road trip tour, uh, all up through the Eola Hills, all up through the hills uh, near Vernonia. Uh, and then the roads I took up into Vernonia this year uh, didn't have numbers. They had names. So they were definitely more tertiary-type roads. Sure. Now, uh, did you have any uh, particular roads of note, maybe to mention to some of our listeners here, something to go check out before full-on winter hits? Well, or? if I live down in Portland, I know one thing. I'd, I'd go up to Rainier and then hook up with the uh, Ferndale Road and go up Apiary Road and then go to Vernonia and have lunch at the Blue House because that's like the best food going around up there. It sounds like a, a hell of a ride, too. Now, I think the big question on our listeners' minds is, in these hot spring uh, pools, what is their chaps policy? Is that on or off? Or you... uh, these were all, uh, <laughs> uh, they were not clothing optional. I gotcha. Yeah. Okay. 
<laughs> you don't want to see old people naked anyways. No, uh, just you know, in case we have a few interested listeners out there. But it sounds like a great tour. And are you going to detail this in the upcoming issue a little bit? Or? Uh, you know, I think what I'm going to do is do more of a generic type of article for the upcoming issue. I'm going to actually recommend 10 different hot springs around the Pacific Northwest. And then the readers can go ahead and create their own tour. And you have 10 in mind already, huh? Oh, yeah. Or, wow, I got a list. Yeah. I think uh, to put that on Facebook. I did. I put the list up on Facebook. That's right. We saw some there and a few listeners chiming in, or a few uh, readers chiming in with some other suggestions that might involve a little bit of a hike, but certainly a lot of great uh, natural resources here in the Pacific but, Northwest. So so uh, I was trying to be a good journalist, mm-hmm. and I was out taking pictures everywhere I went, and on the last morning of the last soak... I put on my bathrobe and went down to the pool right. and took off the bathrobe. And at that moment, the cell phone flew out of Uh-oh. the pocket <laughs> and took its own soak. Into the hot spring. Into the hot pool. Oh, boy. So um, it didn't work. And I brought it home, threw it in a Ziploc bag with a whole bunch of silica gel packets. Right. And 24 hours later, it was back. So now I thought you had told me that Windows 10 was waterproof. Was that not something? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's only if you get the Pro version. But it's not oh, in the, the Pro, Pro Mobile yet because they didn't have it. In the I got you right. But if you're going to be on like your Surface or uh, your laptop, go oh yeah, you can just you swim. take your Surface swimming with you now. It's not a problem. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, next month's guest on the Soundwriter Show is Bill Gates, right? I think that's he's going to tell tell us a little bit about all those waterproof features. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds like a great tour anyway, and uh, you know there are so many, uh, still so many great days left to ride here in the fall. Um, Hopefully, you know, I get a chance to get out there and check some of those out myself. Maybe I can recapture some of those pictures for well, you. Well, we're, we're leaving uh, next Saturday to go down to Ashland, Oregon to do the uh, road trip tour. Getting started. Going to head down from Ashland into Sonoma, right, through Northern California. Yeah, we're going to go to Ashland, and, and we're going to ride down to uh, Redding, the back way. And then we're going to go across over to Mount Lassen, and then down to Chico. And then uh, out to Napa, Sonoma, and spend a whole day out there just doing a loop ride I put together. Um, so we'll stay in, in Napa, Sonoma on Tuesday and Wednesday night. And then Thursday, we're going to ride out to the coast along the Redwoods and uh, do Highway 1 and and, all, and a whole bunch of little back roads with names, not numbers. Yeah. And how's the weather looking down there right now? Are we still, well, it's a little too soon to say. Still, yeah, it's still a little early, but hopefully things will clear up and give you guys yeah. a nice We don't have any days. fires in our way. Well, that's ideal anyway. That was kind of my chief concern, certainly. Yeah. But, uh, there was the one around Clear Lake, the Valley Fire, but it didn't get out to the road we're using. We're using Morgan Valley Road out there. Uh, and by the way, uh, listeners, if if you want to just quit your job and come out on this tour with us, uh, there's space to jump on. So just hit the Soundwriter page. You Absolutely. can sign up. And it would be well worth it, I think, too, especially if you hate your job, right? Yeah, if you don't like your job and you like good roads, I can't think of a better reason just to quit. That's right. Head on down to <laughs> Northern California. No better way to uh, go out than that. And when we're done with the coast, we're going to wind up and end the tour up at the Oregon Caves. And we're going to ride the, the Jefferson State Highway or State of Jefferson Highway, I guess they call it. So Now, have, we done, have you done much in the past in uh, Northern California or is this going to be? No, never down? done a road trip tour in there. Um, you know, we we did the road. We started the road trip tours back in 2010, and we've done Washington a few times, Oregon a few times, Idaho once, 
And uh, then last year, we did a booklet that people can get and use it to do uh, British Columbia. But we didn't book a date because the weather's so iffy up there all the time. I just thought, you know, it's the kind of thing you need to just say, I'm going to check the weather on Monday, and if it's good, I'm taking off. Well, I think there's probably no greater advice uh, in the motorcycling world than that anyway, right? Check the weather on Monday, then take off. Yeah, you know, that's another thing I've been learning this summer. You know, I I told you a couple weeks ago, it was Friday, and I was like, I'm going to take Friday off and go somewhere. Forget it. You can't get a room anywhere on on moment's notice. But you can on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. That's right. That's one of the great things for those of our listeners who, uh, you know, have to work during the weekends, like myself. Uh, having the week off during the, or during the week, if you have days off, it's always the world's your oyster. It really is, right? Yeah. Even if you're going to the bank, if you're going to vacation, everything's a ghost town. So yeah, so that 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 that, that was working good for me. So this yeah, this trip I just said this uh, hydrotherapy tour that I took was uh, uh, I left on Sunday and came back on Wednesday morning. Got three day three day four day trip out of it. Yeah, can't beat that. Sounds like a hell of a trip. I look forward to reading about it in the next month issue. Certainly. All right, we're going to take a little break here, and we'll be back with some news bites. Good morning. This is Wayne Elston from South Sound Motorcycles, and you're listening to The Sound Rider Show. Hi, I'm Ray Coop. I'm from uh, Surrey, B.C., and uh, one of my favorite roads is probably the Curly Creek Road, which runs up towards Mount St. Helen between uh, Wind River Road. Hello, Riders. Welcome back to the Sound Riders Show. Lots of interesting developments uh, this month here in the News Bites feed. Uh, a lot of just uh, bike-related stuff, some new models going out, rumors floating around, and some local stuff as well. Um, Tom, first off, one of the things that I just put up on our Facebook page here is uh, the Mission Electric Bike. Do you know anything about that? I've never heard of them. You know, this was kind of my first introduction as well, but looking at the specs on this particular bike here, 163 horsepower and a 100-mile electric motor, and the news bite was that they actually just filed for bankruptcy officially, but it looked like a pretty good bike. Where are they located at? You know, I think that they're down in California with most of these. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, I think that's the idea. You know, I, I, they had some some press for, like, some record-setting laps and that kind of thing, I think, a that few the Isle years of ago. Man, or? I, you know, I'm not sure the specifics of it. I don't think it was the Isle of Man, but still, I mean, a 100-plus-mile pl- range, that seems pretty decent for a well, bike, A lot right? of people are saying that, but then when you really get the bike out on the road, That's it's another true. story. That is true. But what do you think, uh, sort of in general, you know, we've talked about this a little bit in the last couple of months, but of the electric bike scene, I mean, is that something that you think you would even have interest in, or is it more just in this at this point anyway just sort of, sort of food for thought just kind of fodder I, I think it's still got some development to go but yeah. i think when someone like polaris gets behind it then you know that there's the proper bank account that's not going to go bankrupt right it's going to move it along well which is always the challenge you know one of my things when we talk about electric vehicles just in general and uh i know that there's a certain sort of threshold that you have to meet first of all to get anything in a mass production but i always wonder why do they go with such like uh such massive sort of performance-based machines is that just to attract press i mean 163 horsepower that's ridiculous right that's a ton on a motorcycle why don't we see anything that's like 
you know, 30 horsepower with 150 miles. Cause, right Cause I think this is a lot like the way the motorcycle industry was say back in the sixties and, and actually the motorcycle industry is still working on this premise. And that is things work or they break first at the racetrack. No. Okay. So yeah. when you build a bike up that's durable and can handle high speeds and and you know I mean you're, in electric motors you're talking high temps too of so course, they got to yeah. get the temps there and so uh, uh, the way to do it is to make it happen at the track and when it happens at the track then you take all the good technology and you start making your cubs and your passports and your mini trails right. and, and you know all that i mean uh, honda's success was because of all they did at the track and i and i understand that certainly and there's definitely something to be said with that i just wonder now particularly as we get to more sort of uh as far as media is concerned, it's more accessible, and you talk about things like uh, GoFundMe campaigns and Kickstarter campaigns. I just wonder if maybe there's something, an opportunity for somebody to come in and maybe swoop up some assets of one of these companies, and then you know maybe pre-sale for a more and and everyday model. In terms of consumer models, I mean, Zero has come to the market with a sport bike, a dual sport, a sort of a street standard, true, yeah. a couple different types of models. But, uh, you know, those are all going to make great museum pieces later. They still got a way to go before they're going to start capturing people and say, this is your everyday commuter. I would say, though, the Zeros look pretty nice. I've never had a chance to ride one, but uh, I would certainly give it a shot. So my question is, if I have a, a Zero, can I pull into Detroit, Oregon at the 10 empty Tesla stalls and charge my Zero motorcycle in one of those 10 empty stalls that I saw in Detroit the other day? You know, that's an excellent question i don't know too much about the zero motorcycle but i would think that it has to be at least i mean if it's a motorcycle you'd have to be able to plug it in at home ideally right oh sure you have yeah, to but so. I, I i'm just wondering if these connectors are universal or i'm not I, I don't know enough about them i don't know maybe can you just steal power from like a uh, walmart parking lot lamp or couldn't i just like take a couple of uh of my rechargeable anti-gravity <laughs> yeah my, my, my one and a half volt rechargeables and put them in series and come up with 36 volts let's say i'd have to have 24 to do that yeah if you can handle the weight i think yeah uh, there's probably some way you know just bring an electrical engineer along and you'll be fine <laughs> <laughs> but uh you know moving on from that a little bit and talking about more sort of everyday stuff uh, I had a great article, or we had a, sort of a brief discussion anyway, that you turned into the beginnings of an article about 13 Essentials for Motorcyclists. Where were we at in sort of the development on that? We'll, uh, we'll get that article out in this month's issue. Great, yeah. Do you care to share maybe two or three tidbits out of the 13 Essentials? Yeah, you know, three of them kind of go hand in hand. So it's really the 10 essentials, but it is, it, it is three separate items, your, your paperwork, mm -hmm. you know, your, your registration, your insurance card, and your driver's license um, kind of all go together. You well, should have, have that stuff on you or on the bike all the time. Definitely essential just in case you do get pulled over or, uh, you know, heaven forbid you get into an accident. It's always nice to have the appropriate paperwork handy. So I, I bumped into a guy the other day when I was in Detroit. Yeah. I, I, I unplugged the NC700X from the Tesla charging station. Of course, yeah. And I rode over to the gas station and got some real fuel. Sure. And uh, bumped into this guy who had uh, had uh, four flats over 150 miles. He'd gone through both of his tubes, and he couldn't figure out why he kept flatting. And he was on a motorcycle. He was on a XL 650. 
Well, now that seems to be, I mean, at a certain point, two in a row, you can understand, but four in a row seems to be like maybe there's something going wrong. Uh, I think he's got a staple in the carcass of the tire. He says he ran his hand all through the interior of the carcass and couldn't find anything, but I think there's something in there that maybe he can't feel it until there's some pressure from the outside, and then it pushes it through. Well, I've certainly never heard of four flat tires in that short of a time frame, so... Yeah, and he wasn't marking them... Um, you know, wasn't marking a tire each time yeah. where the flat was happening, mm-hmm. so he didn't really have the history he needed to find out what the problem was with with this tire. I got gotcha. you. So, uh, and you know, so yeah, what 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 got me thinking about that is absolutely the tire repair kit. The proper tire repair kit sure. is is what you want to have as your ten essentials. And I don't, you know, when it comes to tire repair kits, I don't care if you got a, a tubeless or an inner tube. Right, you should be able to fix both because just the, by fact that you have it, there's going to be somebody someday you may run into that needs the other configuration that's true and then of course you can price gouge them and make a nice little profit pay for that yeah i was i was gonna sell this guy my tube of slime for a hundred bucks but he wanted to wait for his buddy with a truck to come and get him instead yeah well and that guy could have used probably two or three tubes of slime so (laughs) i would have just given him the tube of slime of course uh so back down the list here uh talking about maybe some more potential developments uh royal enfield and i guess this is kind of a rumor right now but they appear to be developing Sort of a 410cc dual sport ADV bike. Any thoughts on that? Interesting. Yeah. Well, you know, I mentioned sort of in the comments when I posted it up on Facebook there, I think there might be a lot of takers. I don't know that this is going to be for the American market or if they're going to roll this out uh, sort of in uh, India first, but there'd be a lot of people that'd be interested in a 410, 500cc adventure bike here, don't you think? Oh yeah. yeah, and and why are they they're opening up a uh, U.S. headquarters down the street from Harley Davidson? So yeah. what's up with that? Well, a lot of people from the Harley camp are going to be, you know, heading up that uh, camp there in Milwaukee. Oh, is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a lot of people are going to be. Oh. Have sort of. I'm so not, maybe they can double their sales next year and sell two thousand motorcycles. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, I think they'd be thrilled. Uh, to do that, certainly. Well, is Harley-Davidson invested in the Royal Enfield? No. The, so former employees is kind of what the the, gener- the gist that I got sort of okay. searching around a little bit. But a lot of sort of higher-ups that have formerly worked with Harley-Davidson will be coming over to take up the headquarters. The headquarters, in quotation marks, in Milwaukee for Royal Enfield is only going to be, I guess, about 15 people or so. That's mm-hmm. my understanding. So, But – you know, we saw some pictures of this bike. It looked like a pretty good bike. I mean, you can't tell too much, obviously, and Royal Enfield certainly not without – it's uh, noted history of sort of maintenance and that kind of thing. But. Well, they've definitely, I think, you know, they've got their fit and finish down on the bikes over the last five or seven years. Yeah. You know, they come to market with some decent-looking bikes. They don't always perform as well as you want them to. I know sure. uh, Rich from Rich's Custom Seats turned mm-hmm. one into a sidecar and took it down the freeway, and it blew up. <laughs> so, uh, you know, they still got, I think they need to get into racing. Okay, that, so for the a, development there. But yeah. let me ask you something, though. Let's say, because what are Royal Enfields right now? I think the 500s are rolling off uh, sort of the shelf brand new at, like, what, five grand? 50, yeah, I think around five grand, yeah. So, I mean, potentially speaking, a $5,000 brand new 400cc adventure motorcycle, uh, maintenance or not. 
Okay, now, is that the Royal Enfield, or now are you talking about the Benelli? This is the Royal Enfield still, Okay, so because yeah. then there's a Benelli, then there's a Benelli dual yeah. sport coming. That's right. a, that's a, around a 500cc dual sport. That's right. And just to, just to clarify on the Benelli one, that's actually the Chinese parent company, so that's going to be manufactured in China is my understanding. Yeah. Yeah. So, but so I mean, everybody obviously looking to, I guess, get in on the bandwagon there. But it's kind of interesting that what we'd see, maybe what we'd consider these – uh, second tier or even third tier, although Benelli certainly has its sort of luxury brand for its Benelli brand. But we're seeing these lower tiers maybe make attempts at entering the adventure bike market where we have talked about in that CC range between 400 and 500, where the more traditional companies are kind of ignoring that a bit. So what are your thoughts on that? So then does this mean that when I'm out running uh, uh, a Sasquatch tour or riding a backcountry discovery route, I'm going to have to start helping these people with their maintenance issues that they run into That's out a, there? It's a very real possibility. But, I mean, so the, the other problem with it is is that you don't really have uh, a dealer network. That's true. Uh, and well, you ha- you do a bit in Royal Enfield Benelli. You don't have a dealer network right now in the U.S. Right, and so um, you know when they start selling Chinese motorcycles to people in the U.S. and there's nowhere to take it to get it fixed, it becomes a problem. In fact, uh, as I recall in Washington State, we have a law that says you can't be selling. Uh, all these little off brands, unless there's a place where the consumer can go to get it fixed in the state. Well, to be fair, I think there is a place to take him to get it fixed. It's called the dump. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, not to add, I'm, I'm not advocating certainly for any of these motorcycles. I really don't know anything about them. Obviously, a lot of this is rumor and that kind of thing. What more interests me at this point is we see over and over again these big adventure bikes coming out, right? Even the Honda Africa Twin, yep. still heavy and all this stuff. And then we have all these people lining up going, oh, well, maybe the DRZ 400 is the bike for me. Or people downgrading from their, downgrading again, sort of, in We're quotation marks, from the 1200s yep. to smaller bikes. And now we have, again, these second-tier manufacturers, maybe compared to Honda, Suzuki, Yamaha, jumping in with uh, potentially some lighter ADV models. It just seems interesting to me that that might be where the sort of genesis of this starts and it may <clears throat> it may sour some people's experience if the if the technology is not there and the bike breaks That's you know but yeah, but hey true. they only wanted to spend five grand and yeah. you got to pay more money to get a better bike what we're really missing in uh in a dual sport market is some mid-range dual sport bikes yeah. that are new technology so you know the drz is fine and dandy but that yep. technology is like 10 or 15 years old now that's true although there's some appeal to that right i mean well, yeah, in terms of it being simple to work on, maybe. Yeah. Because, you know, some of these guys are coming out with these things that have, you know, IBM System 36 computers in them or yeah. something. I mean, they're just You've got to beam up crazy with all this computer chip stuff. And then that's a problem because you don't carry all those parts with you when you're out on a BDR or something. That's true. And then philosophically speaking, where do we start to draw that line between adventure and no adventure, I guess, right? Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, you know, maybe, uh, so if you're going to look for some of those more traditional models, uh, you head down to Skagit Power Sports. And Skagit, uh, you know, talking about labor rates being on par with the Canadian Looney for a limited time. Of course, they're near up the border. You've been talking to the guys at Skagit about this? What inspired this? I haven't, I haven't talked to Bill about this, but yeah. I think this is Bill's way of getting a little additional fall business. And uh, I think it's it's uh, you know it's not <laughs> the Canadian government wouldn't want to see that money going over the border. Sure, but uh, it's kind of a nice way to 
to uh, help those guys out when their dollar is not on par with ours. Uh, I don't know. It'd be interesting to see how long he does it for. Um, you know, we had a, we had a guy who wanted to come to the rally last summer and wanted us to cut him a deal to come to the rally because he didn't want to pay the U.S. dollar. But right. I put it on at a U.S. At a dollar US rate. Dollar, sure. So, you know, I guess when you can help him out now and then, that's fine. Uh, but we have to be fair, you know. So, well, hey, I think it's a savvy move on the part of Skagit there. I mean, being so close to the border. Uh, especially this time of year, right? Guys come on down, get their bikes sort of tuned up for that winter put away. Yeah, and one of the things I like about Bill up there is that he is progressive like this. He'll do things like this. And, you know, I don't know. I I know he's older than I am, but he's still got all this fire in him. Yeah. And uh, he's always coming up with new ideas. And people like that I really admire because, you know, for every 10 ideas they come up with, if two or three of them work, they're they're you know they're making a difference. Well, and it's no no question about it. Skagit Power Sports one of the best dealers in the region here. So hats off to Bill, right? According to the Soundwriter readers in the last reader poll. That's right, and just according to our personal experience. Yeah. Um, now moving out to West Seattle here a little more locally in in terms to the uh, the broadcast here, uh, some motorcycle thefts going on. What uh, what's happening out in West Seattle? So they had a rash of motorcycle thefts out in C- in West Seattle, right. and uh, we kind of we see this happen almost every year now about this time of year because mm-hmm. all the bikes are out, sure. and people don't put them away, they don't put them back behind their fence or in their garage, and the bikes get stolen. So uh, last year it was Ballard, this year it's West Seattle, and uh, typically. When he's when these sort of theft rings are going on, it's somebody with an old moving van, and they just go down and three or four people hand carry the bike and throw it up in the van and take it away. They don't care if the forks are locked or anything; they'll get it in there. Have we seen any focus to any particular brands or markets? Are they going after Harley's, Cruisers, BMWs, or is it just anything that's easy to take? Well, the one I saw was a sport bike in one of the listings. Okay. I don't know what the other one was that I saw come across the West Seattle blog. Right. Um, typically, it is things like sport bikes, newer bikes, uh, and and there are vintage bikes because there's uh, several, uh, shall we call them, theft circles for the vintage market around the area. Sure. And so those will get picked up too, you know, and it doesn't cost you a lot to go out and get a nice cable and a nice lock yeah. and lock that puppy up. Yeah, that's always good advice. And, you know, pretty light and easy to take with you. It's always good to have out on the road when you're touring and that kind of stuff if you have to lock up at a hotel or a campground. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's always sad to see. You know, I don't know. What are they farming these out to chop shops? Is that kind of the deal that they do here? Yeah, you should parts them down and yeah. sell them off as parts. Hmm. Yeah, well, it's a shame anyway. Well, hopefully that uh, that rash of thefts has ended. And, uh, of course, we'll keep you up to date if we do see anything spring up on our radar here. Yeah, and no doubt, it will be back next year. So yeah. lock up your bikes, guys and gals. And, uh, you know, we're talking about, again, a little more locally here in Seattle, down at the EMP Museum. Uh, the Captain America bike, and we had that up on our Facebook page. Got quite a uh, raucous reply there. Uh, a pretty good-looking bike. Now, what does this go back to here? This is from... Uh, this goes back to movie Easy Rider. Right. That was before you were born. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and I must confess uh, that I have never seen Easy Rider, though I do know a bit about its lore. What is kind of... Uh, I mean, what are people talking about down here? The, so uh, the question now is, anytime you see what's considered a captain america bike the question is is it the real one right well there was four real ones which makes sense i guess yeah. and uh two of them were stolen immediately after the movie was done uh the other one was crashed so there was really only one on the market at any time it was being 
being uh, bought and sold. Right. And then, uh, you know, the, you know, the guy, well, so you, you don't remember this TV show, but there's a TV show called Grizzly Adams. I'm aware of that show again. And so that guy who was the star of Grizzly Adams is the guy who built up these four bikes along with two other people. Interesting. And so he was the one who was doing the buying and the selling. And then he, he, so he, he basically, he sold two of them. He fixed the one that they crashed right. and he had the other one and he sold them each and said they were authentic. And so the, you, know, you can read about this in, in Wikipedia or, or different places online, uh, quite a bit of lore. So, you know, are you looking at the real one? I don't know, but it's close enough. If you want to know, if you want to get close to what that bike was in the movie, you just go down and see it at EMP right now. She said uh, they're going to have it there through the end of the year. I wonder if they're kind of testing the market right now to see if they want to have a full motorcycle display. Which would be, I think, great down there, right? That I mean, would be that's cool. such a great location. Have you been down to the MP Museum to actually check out the bike yet? Or? I haven't. Yeah. Maybe I'll get down there. I live kind of in the neighborhood there. so I haven't been there in years. Yeah. But, you know, there are, now they try all kinds of different stuff. You know, EMP yeah. meant meant uh you know it was a museum experienced music project right that's right so um so it was music based and that went for a while and then it sort of petered out and they started to have to put all this other stuff in that's how the science fiction museum wound up in there yeah uh and then they they had you know different types of exhibits like the star wars exhibit and stuff like that. and diff- different things just to mix it up i think that's fine you yeah. know they got a big chunk of property they got to keep some funding going with it and so i like to see them trying different things like this yeah and that's you know i'm just putting the finishing touches on my proposal to actually convert the top of the space needle to a motorcycle museum so oh, there you go we're waiting to hear back on that but no uh, more diners fingers crossed that's right <laughs> and that's sort of winding up here in our news bites again it has been a busy month but it looks like that uh we have seen in the industry anyway the aim expo has been acquired by the motorcycle industry council now what kind of effect will this have going forward on any sort of uh, displays that we see well, this is going to be an interesting one to watch because um, the MIC is the people who put together the MSF program, and uh, they, you know, they they have most of the most of the dealers are MIC members and right. that sort of thing. Um, now, the AIM Expo is uh, supposed to be sort of the first American international motorcycle expo. Started about three or four years ago, and. Uh, uh, by selling it over to MIC, it's going to be interesting to see where they take it. There had been rumors that the Expo was going to do its own little uh, domestic tour, like we see with the International Motorcycle Show. And so um, we're going to see what happens with that. Uh, the fact that MIC is behind it, that's, that's kind of interesting, too. Uh, I don't know what's going to happen, but well, it's going to be interesting to watch. Well, it'd be nice anyway. We could probably see a little bit of competition in that arena don't you think yeah if they if they take it on like a 10 city tour then we're gonna see you know and now in our neighborhood here in seattle we don't have the the international motorcycle show it'll be down in portland this year you know so we're going to uh uh there's a there's a gap here right now there definitely is but you know and anytime i think you know competition is always good right so maybe light a fire get these shows uh maybe a little more entertaining a little more comprehensive yeah and uh, hopefully it benefits Everybody involved in the industry. Um, but, you know, we only have uh, – you want to just roll right into the uh, calendar here because we have just a couple of things. And no, let's take a break. There's probably a couple of people that need to pee. I got <laughs> All right. Well, stick around. We're going to come back with the calendar. We're going to talk a little bit about the or interla- inter- excuse me, the International Motorcycle Show in Portland back in just a second on the Sound Rider Show. 
Hi, this is Joel Walson with Triumph of Seattle. You're listening to The Soundwriter Show. Hi, I'm Ron Fox. I live on the Kitsap Peninsula in the town of Polsbo. My favorite ride down here is the Vista House. The curves are great, the road is in great shape, and it is fun. Riders, we are back, and uh, we're going to take a look at the calendar here. It's October, so not a whole lot going on. Uh, some of the usual suspects, the Moto Guzzi Breakfast, the Backfire Moto Night, uh, the, what do we got, the um, Flat Track Racing in Hawaii, probably the last one for the year, I think. But um, locally, we've got the uh, Parts and Apparel Swap going on down at South Sound BMW. That's right. That's going to be coming up on the 24th and always a good time there. Um, do you have any parts or apparel that you're going to be looking to swap coming up here in October? Hmm. I haven't done that in a while. You know, I, I, I unloaded a lot of stuff a couple of years ago, so I'm kind of clean on my motorcycle gear. But uh, it's always interesting to go there and see what, what gets put out. You know, yeah, it, it can be parts for a bike, or it can be. You know, I think they got rules now on what helmets they'll take and what they won't, which is probably a good thing. We should. I you know, agree. Yeah. yeah. Aside from being DOT, any helmet uh, they say what every five years you should replace your helmet, even if you don't drop or. Uh, well, that's a gen- right? that's a general statement. But sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's I like- mean, some helmets are better quality, and and it, you know, when it comes, it's time to replace your helmet when the styrofoam is done. That's right. And you gotta you gotta you gotta know how to look in at that and figure that out. Now, with all this black styrofoam that gets used in the helmets, it's harder to tell if the styrofoam's really done or not. That's right. And of course, well, what do you do when you go to replace a helmet? Do you just turn yours upside down and use it as an actual soup bowl, or are you? Oh, no, you're a full-face helmet guy. That's right. Well, I was yeah, thinking. Yeah, yeah. I was that's, thinking. that's what I do with my half-shells. The half-shells, you yeah. That's, <laughs> yeah. You can serve pasta in them. Yeah, that's all great. All kinds of cool stuff you can do with yeah, them. You should clean them first, but, you know, um, it's there for that. When it's time to replace a helmet, I usually take it down and throw it in a trash can. Yeah, because yeah, it's, no it's no good to anybody, so it's not good no. to have it floating around out there. You get some new rider who says, oh, I'm going to save a few bucks and use your old helmet, and then, yeah, you know, not a good deal. Um well, how about bike-wise, though? I know that this is more parts and apparel here, but are you looking at thinning your herd personally here? Are you going to sell anything off of the? Well, they do. Now, down at, at this swap, they do a separate bike swap okay. in the summer, and uh, that just happened in September. But um, am I looking at yeah, yeah, i I got two bikes I need to sell, yeah. and I just never got around to selling them this year, but I need to unload them. Yeah. Cool. So if anybody needs a nice 1988 NX250 or a uh, 1972 SL350, they should get a hold of me. That's right. Cash only. <laughs> and lots of it. And lots of it. Yeah. Well, that 250 is a great looking bike. <laughs> I will say that. Uh, but also on the 24th, if uh, maybe you're in a little bit different part of the state here, again, our friends over at Skagit Power Sports are having Adventure Day. Now, what have they been telling you about Adventure Day? It looks pretty great here. It's like two rides, a couple of seminars, a barbecue, lots of great stuff going on down there, and also uh, local reps and some presentations from both uh, MotoQuest and Sound Rider. Yeah, so they always they do this once a year. Um, they've been trying to do more adventure stuff throughout the year, but uh, they do this once a year, and um, 
you know, it's all kind of a crapshoot at the end of October. It's going to rain or not. Right. But, uh, you know, you you don't have to go on the rides. You could just come in and enjoy the late afternoon stuff for the barbecue and all that. But uh, it's always interesting, and, and Phil from MotoQuest is going to be there, and he'll be doing some slideshows on some of his tours that he runs. And uh, I'll be there. We'll be doing the tips and tricks. Whatever you need to know, that's what we're going to talk about. Well, it sounds like a great time. And, hey, rain, that's just part of the adventure, right? So that shouldn't let anybody – shouldn't yeah. scare anybody away. Potential rain anyway. You can go in your car if you want. It's that's okay. Right. <laughs> and then, of course, uh, the week after that, starting on the 30th down in Portland, the aforementioned Portland – International Motorcycle Show. Now, this is going to be the first hosting of the International Motorcycle Show in Portland in quite some time, or is it ever? Do you know on that, Tom? I don't ever recall one, but yeah. I've only lived here since 97. So. Okay. Um, now, well, okay. They, they, Yeah, in terms of International Motorcycle Show, there was a Portland Motorcycle Show one year. Sure. And uh, we almost got to it. But then uh, we had turned the car around because Connie got sick. Oh, well, that's unfortunate, certainly. So uh, when, it, it uh, went off, but it never they never did it the second year after that. No, so maybe an indication of how well it went the first year. But, you know, I'm really looking forward to having it down there in Portland. I think it'll be a nice change of pace. Hopefully, we can see some bigger numbers there, and hopefully, as the first time in Portland, it will draw a big crowd. Uh, I, think it'll, I think it'll be well-supported the first year, and then it's going to depend on what's there in terms of different flavors of vendors yeah. and, and bikes to see. If it's, if, it's, if it's no different from just going to your local motorcycle shop, people don't, don't want to spend the money for parking and tickets to go year after year, so we've got to be, you know, have the entertainment factor there, and, and, and a diversity of vendors would be really good. Now, let me ask you this, because Soundrider has been a part, uh, you could even consider it a fixture of the Northwest uh, International Motorcycle Show here in the Northwest. How many years have you been attending? So we have attended and and put on the Northwest Motorcycle Exhibit Mm -hmm. since 2001. Okay, so we're talking about this is going to be the 14th year in a row. Yeah. Right. So a long time running. And again, I'll just mention, uh, speaking of the Northwest Motorcycle uh, Show and Display, um, soundrider.com slash IMS. If you do have a bike that you'd like to come down and display with us in Portland, we'd be more than happy to hook you up with a couple of free passes. But what I want to ask you, Tom, is what kind of suggestions would you make somebody who's in both the media and in the vendor space to the guys at IMS, what would you say would draw a bigger crowd, would make it a more engaging experience? Is there anything year after year that you kind of look around and you go, you know, it'd be really great if we had X? It's it's a, a lack of vendors over the last few years, yeah. I think, is what deteriorated Seattle down. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we've got a lot of small guys who can't afford the money it takes to go in for the weekend. Right. And and we need to get more those guys into the show. So um, I that would be my number one thing. You know, I I personally don't care for the live bands that they have. Sure. Although I think it's it's good the way they put it together with School of Rock and all that. Yeah. But uh, it really makes it hard for me to work as a vendor when I have all that noise going on in the background. Right. So um, well, I know last year too. In addition to the uh, the School of Rock, we also had. The dyno testing machine, which is right down from us in Seattle there, right? There was somebody running a dyno in the... Wasn't that... Uh, I can't remember. It was right uh, just down the uh, the way from us in the Soundrider booth. Everybody would hop on there once every 
couple of hours, and they had the oh, it was, a, it was I think it was at the Harley booth. Was that yeah, what it that's was? right. Yeah. It was. It was yeah. the Harley booth, and they had they had a bike hooked up, and and the vacuums on the pipes, and the whole mm-hmm. shot. Yeah, that was annoying. Yeah, <laughs> you know, you want to do that? Go to the dealer, get in the parking lot, and wrap it up. You yeah, know, maybe so. But you know, hopefully the turnout here in Portland will be good. Certainly, we'll be down there for the entire weekend. And again. I- I know one thing I liked that they did one year. They had a a whole little track set up, and they had those uh, those little bicycles for kids to learn to ride on. Yeah, and and that was a big hit. And and just the fact that when families got there, they had something that their little ones could do. Plus, you know, you want to you want to sucker them into being motorcycle riders. That's later. right. Yeah, get them young. And uh, they're called Strider bikes. And so I bought my grandson William a Strider bike that year. Nice. And two years later, my granddaughter learned how to ride it. And two years later, my youngest grandson has learned how to ride it. Getting a lot of mileage out of it. Yeah, we got some good mileage out of that Strider. I don't know, it might be ready for new tires. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) (laughs) We'll go and see our friend Don at All Moto Tires, right? He can get you set up there. And uh, also around the same weekend there, now we've got the 24 Hours of Starvation Ridge. I can't say that I'm familiar with this, so what can you tell me? So this is uh, an event that's been going on for quite some time now. I don't have the actual number of years, but it's been getting bigger and bigger and bigger. It started off as sort of a dirt bike event, and it's been attracting people out of the ADV market now. And so we're seeing a lot more activity about the event in social media where uh, some of these hardcore ATV riders like like Tracy Jeffries and Tad Haas and sure. all these people, they go out there and they, and they do this. Now, uh, as I recall, you can either do this uh, uh, totally on your own for 24 hours if you want to be nutty like that. I'm not sure. Or you can go as a team, and then your team just does the circuit. It's a big circuit. It's down in Goldendale, mm. and it's at uh, uh, something, Eddie Motorsports Park, I think he calls it. Um, he's got quite the track that goes around the hills there, and um, it gets really – they do, do it every year on Halloween weekend. It gets really interesting – when it rains. I can imagine so. But now, is this something, too, that's uh, worthwhile to take in as a spectator, or is it more focused on the actual riders themselves? You could. You could go down there as a spectator. I, I'm sure you'll have to pay some sort of admission to go in. Yeah. But go down in there and support some of these guys and sure. look at what they're doing and see how they set up their bikes. Now, imagine if it's a really good weather weekend. Right. And you could have quite a good weekend. You could go to the yeah. Portland Motorcycle Show on That's Friday right. night. Yeah. And then you go down and watch the 24 Hours of Starvation Ridge for as long or short as you want. True. And if the weather was good and you're out in the Columbia River Gorge, you're, in, you're, you're having a great weekend in the fall i would I agree with that 100 percent. and how about a rec- a uh, restaurant recommendation out in goldendale washington you got anything for our listeners oh yeah 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 um it's just you caught me off guard and now i gotta remember the name of it well let's just talk about the fact that uh, this is a region that you do visit quite often of course the uh, no, saying, this one's named after a beatles song after a Beatles song. Yeah. Oh, it's called The Glass Onion. There we go. Yeah. That's the one I was thinking of, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That place is awesome. Did you eat there? I haven't yet, but I know that uh, you've mentioned it quite a few times to me, so maybe down at the uh, Portland International Motorcycle Show with weather permitting, uh, I'll make the loop. Plus, a lady, it's it's owned by a guy and a woman, and uh, the woman's name is Marin. So you know it's going to be good. Yeah, you know it's going to be good. Uh, just like the calendar always is on soundrider.com slash calendar, where we keep you up to date on all the latest happenings in relation to the world of motorcycling here in the Pacific Northwest. 
Uh, coming up next, I think we're going to have one of our interviews, and I think it's going to be Joanne and Bob Gerbing from I think it is. Gordon's Heated Clothing. So we're looking forward to that, and we hope you are too. Stick around to the other side of the break on the Soundwriters Show. Hi there, this is Uli Langenberg from Uli's Famous Sausage, and you are listening to the Soundwriter Show. Hi, I'm Greg from Goldendale, Washington. Only lived out here a year, but there's all kind of great roads to ride, and I haven't found them all yet. back and uh it's really cool to have these people here with me today that are here because i've known one of them for just about 15 years now uh about 15 years ago i rode my motorcycle out to union washington and had the opportunity to meet gordon gerving who uh took care of me i was frozen when i got there and uh, he outfitted me with a full set of gerbing gear and and we started our relationship that way and and uh they came in supported soundwriter on different events and uh it was really great working with them and uh things have changed and now some of the kids are taking over the heated clothing business so in the studio with us now is uh Bob Gerbing and Joanne Gerbing well hello and hello <laughs> Glad to have you here, and we're going to talk about your new venture. Uh, the old venture, uh, Gerbing's Heated Clothing, was kind of sold off through a couple of different investment company type deals, and uh, you guys are taking over and picking up where that older Gerbing left off, and uh, the new company is called Gordon's Heated Clothing. How apropos. Well, we do like to tell Dad that... Um He's kind of lucky because he's actually had two companies named after him in his lifetime. Yeah. Yeah, that is pretty good. Yeah, good track record, I'd say. He did it backwards, though. He named the first one after his last name, and then he named the second one after his first name. Well, that's only because the last name was trademarked, so we couldn't use it again. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. So um, for for listeners who don't know, um, Gordon Gerbing is basically the father of heated clothing in the motorsports business and uh, started that up years and years ago down off a, a, a warehouse off a of Boeing field. Is that right? Actually, it started Maple Valley uh, when Eclipse and Witter were the that's right the, the, the boys in the game. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, Dad started in the late 70s, and he had, a, he had a vision, and he decided after some employees showed up at his work, at a machine shop, cold on motorcycles, he decided to start finding a way to get them warm. And it turned into basically taking apart an electric blanket and putting the wire into pads, and that's what started it back then. And he turned it into a very effective company, which uh, grew and grew into a very well-known, obviously, everybody knows Kirby and Seated Clothing. And then, uh, then that's when things changed after so many years at that. 
So has the emphasis always been then on motorcycle clothing? Is that was the sort of the origination piece, and that's continued through since the 70s? Yeah, Yeah, definitely. And then um, as it progressed and everything, they did start branching off into other things and started looking at different technologies, um, trying to go into the medical field and also, you know, uh, battery-operated hunter, sportsman, things like that, which is now what they're actually um, concentrating on. They're kind of putting the motorcycle... what do you call that? Sort of the marketplace, right? Right. So the mar- they're kind of putting that aside more because the new owners actually their heart is more towards the sportsman sportsman stuff, like Cabela's and things like that. Well, the, the new owners are part of Cabela's. Yeah. So they okay. To, so to that makes sense the hunters, that they would. Yeah. Battery operated. My, my last year was at Gerbings. We're in R and D, making battery power to get the maximum heat from minimum power. And when we just, we just when we realized that Gerbings was no longer owned by any Gerbings, we decided me, my brother Dave, and Joanne decided to pick it back up. We decided to, of course, be exclusively to the motorcycle community that, sure. that started it all. So that brings us now to Gordon's Heated Clothing, which is why you guys are here today, of course, because yes. we are a motorcycle uh, podcast, right? And we want to talk about motorcycles. So let's talk a little bit about the motorcycle industry and where you guys are at today. So we split off, you know, Gerbing, Gerbing's Heated Clothing is different. We're Gordon's Heated Clothing. When does this take effect? When did it take effect? Yeah. Um, we actually started manufacturing about a year ago. Great. Um, about a, a year ago in June, we w- did our first show at AmeriCade. We went to start getting the word out. We didn't even have anything going on with the manufacturer. We just said, hey, this is what we're going to do. We actually took pre-orders, and people just waited for us to get everything going. And then in September of last year is when we first started our first manufacturing. Well, it's great really leveraging Dad's uh, reputation there, right? So yeah, you trying to take the, advantage yeah. of that, right? <laughs> That's right. He's, he's thrilled. He, you know, sure. He's 85, and um, he is in assisted living, but um, he knows that uh, we're out here pushing it and everything, and uh, he's totally thrilled with being able to bring back this legacy of you know, quality and uh, customer service, and um, and also we're doing it. Everything we're doing is American made. That's great. All here in the Pacific Northwest, too. Yes. Right? Yes. Now, uh, before I want to talk a little bit about the products, of course, and uh, but I'm just curious, what was uh, Dad's last bike? Do you remember? What was his last bike? Yeah. Dad never rode he a bike. Rode. Oh, okay. Yeah. He wasn't a rider. Okay. Actually, we're the only riders in the family. Well, let's talk about your bikes then right now. What are you guys on? <laughs> well, my bike goes from a porch to Seattle every day, rain or shine or snow. So Great. So 365 days a year, huh? It takes ice to get me off the road. I got you. And what kind of bike are you on right now? It's a, it's a Honda Shadow Cruiser. Okay. Yeah, but. fantastic. And how about you, Joanne? Well, I just ride on the back. I got you. <laughs> 365 days a year? Oh, no, no, no. Even, she stays home. I yeah. stay home, and even um, even with the heated clothing, I really prefer to ride in the nice weather. No, we, we call her a solar-powered rider because when the sun's out, she's on the bike. Otherwise, um, where's Joey? Yeah. At home. I understand that. But for some of us, like Tom and myself, who are year-round riders, what is the uh, product line looking like right now? I know we've got gloves. We've got liners. we have anything else that's... Uh, I'm hoping by the end of the year um, that we will get some pants liners as well. Sure. Um, the um, original seamstress, one of them from Gerbings, is actually going to help me design them, and then she is putting me in contact with a manufacturer in Shelton, Washington, so that we can get going on the pants liners as well. Great. Keeping it wow. all still yeah. local here, huh? Yeah, wow. you betcha. Now, yeah, um, we were looking at your website the other day and seeing that you know, everything so far is northwest. You get the... The uh, heat modulators are out of Oregon area. Yes. Yeah. Um, my question is, eventually you're going to get to the feet. 
And my preference was those insoles over the socks on the old product. So where where do you think you might go with that? You know, I've had a lot of mixed reviews on the insoles versus the socks. And so honestly, <laughs> I'm not quite there yet. I actually like the idea of the insoles myself. Yeah. Um, but I've heard a lot of things from people that say that the they, um, cords break easier and things like that than with the whole sock. Huh, so I'm not sure. We'll, it's just going to take some consideration, research. certainly. Yeah. Yeah, you want something that's going to last for a while. Um, so everything's here in the Northwest, of course. And for people who are thinking about, uh, you know, maybe interested in starting out using heated clothing, what would be sort of your recommendation to it? I mean, what kind of a setup do we need as far as electricity is concerned, you know, battery power? Well, you have to have a minimum requirement of uh, amp output, and every motorcycle's got its uh, set output amp. Basically, a 750 and above, you can handle jacket liner, gloves, and even pants. Um, if you have a 350 below, you can might start pushing gloves. But it comes down to your alternate output, and you want to make sure you have enough power. I got and you. So, but the major let's let's talk about some, maybe some of the more popular standard bikes, like the uh, all the BMWs, the GSs, the 800s, or the 1200s. No problems there, right? Well, yeah, load them yeah, up. Those okay, fine, yeah. sure. So the larger adventure bikes, that's not going to be a problem Never because a we're problem, starting no. to see that being a bigger uh, market here. And then the larger cruiser bikes too, because it sounds like you're also on a cruiser. So yeah, they, right. they, they, they handle that just fine. This is a smaller bikes. When you get 350 below 250, you just you got to start watching your. How do the BMWs with the ride-by-wire react? Is there an issue with that? Uh, what's that special electricity deal they got going on there? Okay, that's that's a computer chip that yeah. you deal with. Yeah, and sometimes those can be fickle. I remember re- re- hearing about that. Um, it, it, that's what sometimes you got to bypass that. Okay, and so you just pull it right off the battery. Yeah, maybe, if, huh? yeah. If that because that's of the way around it on those. Yeah, pull off the battery. Yes. Got it. Got it. Um, in terms of um, efficiency. Well, before we get to that, let me ask you this. Uh, you guys originally started up with the wire-type product. Then you went to the micro-wire. This is on the legacy line. And today, what are we doing technology-wise in the gloves and the jacket? Well, what we did was we actually modeled everything uh with the classic stuff that we had in the 90s or whatever. But instead of using the copper wire with the PVC coating, we've actually got a carbon fiber wire that's like um, bundled into a silicone coating. And so it's sort of like the microwire. It's just a different delivery system. And so we just weave it through the gloves. Basically, Churchill uh, Glove Company makes our gloves for us. They send us the liners. We have our people wire them up. And then we send them back to them, and they build that glove around those liners. And so then you come back, and it's a nice even heat. With the silicone and the carbon fiber, you really don't feel the elements in there. And then we went back to the classic um, where we just make the heating pads that go inside the liners just like we did before because they were reliable. Mm-hmm. The carbon fiber wire does not break, and which is why we can bring back the lifetime warranty on the electrical. Ah, that, so, okay. Yeah. yeah, I noticed that that was back. So yeah, um, on the... Um uh, the efficiency are they more heat efficient than before? Or I guess you still you need just as many amps to get it's as much heat. It's pretty much don't the you? same. Yeah, yeah. You can't really change the laws of electricity like that. <laughs> <laughs> but no more barbecue, right? Ohm's a stickler for that, right? Right. Yeah. yeah, the Ohm's, exactly. yeah, yeah, yeah Ohm's law rules. That's right. Yes. <laughs> well, let me let me ask you this though, because I I'm a sort of a noted minimalist, right? I I ride a smaller bike. I don't carry much luggage and that kind of stuff. Now I do am 
close to being a year-round rider. I do avoid you know, some of the more uh, difficult winter months or Decembers through Februarys. But if there's other people out there who are kind of like me, what would you, what would you kind of say to convince them that maybe you know, it's worth it to give it a shot? How simple is it to set up? I mean, how much of a difference are we going to see using heated gloves, using heated liners? What are your kind of thoughts on that to sort of maybe encourage people to get out there and give it a shot? Well, I can just tell you from experience from riding as many, many days as I can. Yeah. Because I commute with the motorcycle and we, I ride the ferry system every day. And, and then when it's cold and you leave in the morning, if you have heated clothing, you, I don't want to take the car on the ferry. If, uh, if a bike's practical for you, you want heated clothing because you can ride your motorcycle and if, as long as you don't have ice on the road having the heat is the most incredible feeling because you're you're warm and, right. and that's been the selling point and that's why it's gotten so popular first of all because it's effective right and, and do, do we see any complications i mean because oh wait a second i want to share my selling point because you went right by it <laughs> my selling point is that the more comfortable you are on the motorcycle the better you'll operate it it's a safety issue yes. so it's a safety Probably. issue yeah and uh, if you're sitting there freezing your buns off because your core has dropped down to 97 degrees or something, um, you're not going to ride that well. You're going to be thinking about where am I getting a cup of coffee next instead of when a deer pops out in front of you. So I think that's a major – if you're looking for a selling point, I Definitely. think that's a no, major I, I selling that's, point. I had a heinous experience in my younger days on motorcycle, and this was way back when we didn't have the helmet laws in Washington and Oregon. Sure. And uh, not – Bob and I, but somebody else and I. Right. Um, we did a motorcycle trip from Portland to Snoqualmie for Thanksgiving to go to my mother's, and wow. it rained the whole time. And he had a helmet. I had. We had no gear really, and I could barely move my legs when I got off the bike. And it was horrible, and it was dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. And, Late uh, November. That's not. Yeah. <laughs> raining. Yeah. <laughs> I see rain. It was horrible. Not ideal time. And there. I wish I would have known then about heated clothing. Sure. <laughs> so. No, I can imagine. That, that I mean, that can make a world of difference. I, I honestly, I hear nothing but good things about using heated clothing, and uh, it's one of those things that I'm excited to have a chance to try. Do we ever see uh, do people ever have concerns about using it when it's raining and that kind of thing? Or I mean, certainly we don't have any problems with it, but do people ever express that concern? Oh yeah, will it shock me? Right, will it catch a fire <laughs> or whatever. But no, it's DC power, and so sure. the worst thing that's going to happen is if you if there's moisture that gets in there, you're going to steam. Just like if you're out walking and working up a sweat and you're wearing a fleece or something, you're going to steam out of the... Of course. Or, or as Gordon said to me, you can't get shocked off of 12 volts. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and in the past, you know, with the, with the other company, we, there were problems with the older equipment. People who are experienced with it know that there were problems with hot spots and stuff. We've got a process which eliminates all that as well. So it's all safe. We've actually taken the wire that we do put in the pads and like just balled it up and stuck it between stuff and just plugged it in and just let it oh, sit wow. for hours and hours. Nothing. So some real so, life testing there. Yeah, right, absolutely. To make sure that it's. Uh, yeah, we avoid the barbecue. No barbecue. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm. I'm. Uh, I was a recipient of the Gerbing barbecue years ago. Oh, yeah. nice. When all the heat just went right into that one. Actually, I can it touch was the part of my body too. right where it was. That's a club, actually. You're on yeah, you're in a special right. club yeah. there, Tom. <laughs> So then, again, for uh, our listeners who are interested, what are we talking about for a pair of uh, heated gloves or a pair or a, 
uh, heated liner uh, cost-wise? What are they retailing for right now? Uh, they retail the gloves retail for one ninety nine. The liner is two thirty nine, and the heat control unit goes for about ninety nine. If you get the whole unit together, you do get like a thirty nine dollar discount. So you get like nice. a package discount. Um, and again, you get the lifetime warranty on the electrics and the gloves are deer hide. They've got a waterproof membrane in them and thinsulate. They're warm even before you plug them in. Wow. They've been thoroughly tested in the state of Washington for the waterproofing. Um, you want to give them the experience about the ride well, around the know, canal? <laughs> the waterproof's a, a, a misnomer because nothing's waterproof unless you wrap it in plastic. But uh, a couple of hours in light rain, the gloves will stay dry after five hours of heavy rain the water will wick down the gauntlet into your fingers and you'll have damp fingers after I would, sure. to, they'll still be warm though it's always <laughs> the um, it's always the stitching areas that let the water in yes we do recommend beeswax a uh, good coat of beeswax and the, the glove itself because that's actually good protectant and it doesn't destroy it mink oil destroys leather especially deer hide so well, call me crazy. In the middle of winter, I think uh, four and a half hours is about as long as I want to ride. Heated clothing or not. So <laughs> right. if they could get waterproof gloves up to five well, hours. There's a couple crazy there. ones like us who like to go around the, the whole Olympic Peninsula sure. in the middle of December. <laughs> because there's nobody out there and it's a high-pressure day and it's like, got to go. And actually, this was a motorcycle run. It's called the kidney run, and we do it every year for a, a, it's a good benefit. And she was caught in the back, and we got caught in the rain. And we were out of 150 bikers that signed up, 12 rode the loop, and we were one of them. <laughs> nice, yeah. And it was yeah, that was a rain. Uh, day. Couldn't have done it without the Gordon's glove, though. Um, so, uh, in terms of care, um, their deer hide. Can you put neck wax on them? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. And I know a lot of people are, uh, you know, are thinking right now that they'd love to give it a shot, but they'd probably like to get their hands on it first. Now, we were lucky enough to have you guys down at the rally in the gorge this year, and we thank you for coming down. Are there any events or are there any uh, things coming up? Maybe where someone can actually come out, you know, shake the uh, shake your guys' hands, get their hands in the gloves, try on the liners and that kind of thing. You guys going to be doing any events here in uh, October? Well, um, October, we're hoping to do the IMS show in Portland, Great. Yeah. Uh, which is October 31st and November 1st. Um, we will be, I don't know when this is broadcasting, at the Oyster Run this Sunday. Um, and then you, you need to actually go to our website and uh, and like us on Facebook, and then I'm always announcing where we're going to be. Um, and then if you want to sign up for the email list, then you can get um, uh, like updates on new products, like when we come out with the pants and things like that. Sure. And we do like only four emails a year. Usually it'll be like, oh, we're going to do a special for you people, you know, put in this code or whatever. Great. Um, and uh, so definitely do that. Get the, Go to the website, sign up on the Facebook and then you'll be able to get well, informed on where we're going to be. And if you do call the company or a phone number, if you do make an appointment, you can stop by at our so-called shop where we have the, everything managed. Sure. Yeah, that is our house yeah. in Port Orchard. <laughs> we, can, we can make an appointment. You can stop by any time, and we'll yeah. let you see everything we have there. So yeah. this guy called Joanne and say, can I make an appointment? And we'll put the dogs away and come on over. Outstanding. And all that <laughs> contact information on the website. I'm well, sure. that right. brings yeah. us to another question, uh, dealer network. Do we have one yet? No. Not Are we going to do one? Um, it's going to depend on how popular we get. And um, as we increase in popularity, there's a good chance that we will be getting a dealer network going. But, you know, that's a little further down the line. We're, right now we're just getting our product line up and going and complete. Sure. And, um, and then we'll be moving on from there. So. Well, I call it the David against Goliath scenario because, you know, <laughs> um, we, we help 
start Gerbings back in the seventies. I was doing it, and we did. We built it up, built it up, built it up, and and then uh, it was not no longer part of us. And so now we're starting from scratch, and that's why everything's literally square one. Yeah. Where we're going to start, and that's why pants are coming online. And I can see in a few years we'll be having a store, and we'll get there eventually. Mm-hmm. But you got to start somewhere. So. Yeah. Well, absolutely. You know, every mile. Well, I liked it step, when you right? had yeah. sort of the boutique sellers, where you had the the back in the day it was Ride West BMW, or you could go to Eagle Leather, but you didn't have like everybody carrying the product line and that sort of thing, and it hadn't gotten. You know, eventually it got bigger than than that. But um, that's I think that's a good thing if people couldn't go and experience the product somewhere in Seattle. Um, so maybe well, we'll yeah, get there. and I get a lot of East Coast people that call me looking for um, course, yeah. a place to go see it. And so um, you know, eventually we're going to have to have some kind of distribution out into some of the shops, you know, throughout the country, uh, just so they can see it. Get their hands in it, you know. Mm-hmm. You and one of the big it. steps I remember on the classic line was the day you guys got the Harley deal, and you basically had to build a new warehouse. <laughs> yeah, that was back in the Gerbing days before uh, before I was showing the door. Um, but uh, <laughs> yeah, that that was a that was a, a, a major contract, and I, I think they still have it going yet. But um, the, the problem I always had with that because Harley was. America and everything that my brother did was made in China. And I was like, oh. uh, I thought that was a conflict of interest, I always thought. Yeah. So well, that's interesting. Hmm. So for our listeners, one more time then, what is the website where they can go and check out uh, where you guys are at as far as uh, accessing uh, the product, you know, making, making orders and where you're going to be for, uh, you know, events and that sort of thing? Uh, the web address for? Is uh, www.gordonsheated.com. So G-O-R-D-O-N-S-H-E. A-T-E-D. And there's also a uh, link to your Facebook page on there, I assume, as well. Now, just to uh, wind up here, I just want to ask Bob, because he is a year-round rider here. Tell me a story, Bob. You're out there riding. What's sort of the coldest weather you've been in, in your heated gear? I mean, snow aside, right, we know ice is always too dangerous for uh, two wheels, but what's, give me a story here. You've, the guy who rides uh, year-round, well, you have to have uh, one or two up your sleeve, I'll right? Give you, I'll give you a story. About a year or two ago, I had to read the forecast, and it said snow is going to start about 4, 4.30. And so I wake up in Porcher and look out the door. It's not snowing. So I say, I'm going to make it to work today. So I get in the motorcycle, and I get in the Fauntleroy Southworth Ferry, a little Southworth Fauntleroy Ferry, and, and uh, get off the dock, and uh, all of a sudden it's snowing. And by the time I get to the top of the hill in White Center, there's an inch and a half on the ground, and I'm making fresh tracks in the snow. And it's cold out, and I'm still doing 2530, and I uh, don't know how I made it, but I made it all the way down to South Park and, and uh, made it just fine. Or the other time I was trying to come back from Seattle, and it said it's going to snow, and I ended up actually having to call Joanna. We still lived in the Union Hood Canal, and she... I got off the boat, and it was so many inches of snow. I actually had to park the bike at a friend's house, and she had to come pick me up. Then there was the time to Shelton where you you hit the the high part on McCreevy Road and hit the ice. (laughs) I've been caught. See, that's that's the tricky thing around the Pacific Northwest is the ice because you can have a really clear day, but there's places like out in Shelton and up on the Olympic Peninsula on on, on 101 on the north end up there by Mm -hmm. Lake Crescent. 
And, and there's parts of the road that never get any sunshine for about a month right, in December exactly. and, and January. And so if they get a little moisture on them, it just freezes on top. And so you think it's a nice day and you come around a corner and all of a sudden you feel a little slippy slide and you know you got to turn around. Yeah, that's, that's what you got to watch for. But at the same time, though, it's just, uh, it's fun to ride in the cold. There's nothing nothing more exciting than being in the cold and being warm because you know you're fighting the elements and you're comfortable. That's right. And no traffic like Tom mentioned earlier right? yes <laughs> so what's the longest you ever wore heated clothing and road at any one single time i have to say uh around the the, the hood canal 101 ride yeah it's a couple hours yeah, three hours but, something yeah. like that. so i went around the olympic peninsula one day with with my heated clothing on from your father and um I was in the gear for about 12 hours, mm. and what happened was my thyroid just basically stopped asking my body to produce heat, Oh my! Goodness. and it was like an out-of-body experience. It was strange. I was, I, you totally disconnected from my physical being. It was totally weird, uh, and, and I've, I've, I've not had it happen since that one time, but of course, I don't go do 12 hours on a bike very often. No. But uh, if anybody else has had the Gerbings out-of-body heated experience... We'd like to know. <laughs> send us an email. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, to get back in-body here and wind up, I do want to thank you guys for coming in and telling us about the product line here. Uh, of course, we'll have some information up on the website, soundwriter.com. And, of course, we can go visit you guys. Once again, that website is... www dot gordonsheated.com well joanne and bob gerbing thank you so much for taking the time to join us here on the sound rider show we hope to see you out there on the road in fall thank, thank you, you guys thank for you coming so out. much for having us you guys you guys are awesome and by the way we totally totally loved the hood river run it was awesome oh we'll do it again i, I can't wait we want you back <laughs> we'll be back <laughs> all right we're coming right back in just a moment hello this is harold olaf cecil from giant loop and you're listening to the sound rider show I'm Roy Barnes. I ride a BMW F650GS uh, 2009 with 130-some thousand miles on it. My favorite ride is wherever the road goes. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Sound Rider Show. Now, Tom, you know, here we have the uh, the training modules for motorcycle riders is the Motorcycle Safety Foundation. But, of course, down in Oregon, they have uh, Team Oregon, who's been at it since the 80s. And uh, they just rolled out a new online training program. And our next guest, the one that we've got on the line right now, is the Communications and Outreach Manager for Team Oregon. He's going to tell us a little bit about that. Pat Hahn, how are you doing today, man? I'm doing very well. Looking out at the rain, but otherwise feeling pretty bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. How are you guys? Uh, we're doing fantastic, and thank you so much for joining us here again on the Sound Rider Show. Now, you know, we've got a lot of listeners uh, throughout the Pacific Northwest. Not everybody's just in Oregon. What can you tell us a little bit about Team Oregon and sort of the maybe general sort of premise that they operate under there in the state of Oregon for motorcycle training? Well, sure. We've uh, we've been the motorcycle uh, rider training program since the early 80s, since 1984. And uh, basically, the, the, the state of Oregon has entrusted us 
to bring new riders into the motorcycle community by way of, of rider training, uh, rider safety training. And so we've been, we've been doing that. And, and many, many of your audience, your listeners know that, uh, back about 15 years ago, we broke trail from the MSF curriculum. We decided that we needed something that applied more specifically to Oregon riders and to riders in the Pacific Northwest and the hazards that we face. And so we developed our own curriculum based on our own priorities, you know, visibility and riding gear and, and scanning and recognizing clues and hazards in the environment. That's Those are the priorities that we, that we place sure. on our, our curriculum, particularly cornering, um, which is most... Most of you know that cornering is probably, that's the way we lose most of our riders in Oregon, the Pacific Northwest, really across the country. But I like to say, you know, when you when you live in, in Minnesota or Iowa right. and you run off the road in a curve, you're in the corn, right? right? But in, in, in Washington or Oregon, if you run off the road in a curve, you're in the rocks, Right. Yeah, or, or you're over the over, or the, over the mountain. That's right. A lot of uh, right. a lot of different riding terrains out here in the Northwest. And you know, we talk about. I think Washington here in the Pacific Northwest is really the only holdout for the uh, Motorcycle Safety Foundation. We're seeing a lot of changes in Idaho recently. A lot of changes in California, and of course, uh, with you guys down there in Oregon. Now, how long specifically have you been affiliated with uh, Team Oregon? Because I know we talked a little off here. You're originally from the aforementioned Minnesota. Yes, I, uh, I I cut my teeth in Minnesota in 1996, but I came to Team Oregon in 2001. So it's been I'm sorry, no, 2011. It's been uh, it's been five years. Were those and the same? During, hey, were those the same teeth you used to eat all that corn? <laughs> yes, and, and 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 hot dogs too, and a hot dish. I don't know if you know what hot dish is. I'll tell you about it sometime. I, I think I think our friend from Detroit here probably knows what it is. I know a little bit about that. That's also what we call our. That's maybe another name for a, a podcast you and I could do, Pat. We'll call it the the hot dish out of uh, Oregon. There. Um, so let's uh, let's talk a little bit about the uh, the training curriculum that you guys have here now. Traditionally speaking, motorcycle training for beginners or for those that are getting back into riding, anybody looking to get that state licensure, it's kind of you go, you take the classroom portion, they do the riding portion. It's all in person. Uh, it's all you know, sort of a group effort. But now, just recently, just this year, you guys have rolled out down in Oregon an online portion to substitute for the uh, in-person classroom portion. Why did you guys decide to make this move? You know – when people think about rider training, uh, particularly new riders, but, but anybody, when you think of rider training, you think of the hands-on experience. You think of learning to work the clutch and shift and learning to operate the bike and turn and stop and, and corner and stuff like that. And that's, that's fun, and that's what we think of. But the reality is, is the most important work that we do is in the classroom. And by that, I mean situation awareness and riding strategy and positioning strategy and, and judgment and decision-making and, and being able to identify hazards and conditions in the environment earlier than you would maybe when you're behind the wheel of a car. And our, you know, our primary focus is, is that it's, it's not like driving a car. Motorcycling is not like driving a car. It's not just learning to work the clutch and shift. Right. You have to think like a motorcycle rider. You have to think differently when you're on a bike. And so we took uh, a new approach, a brand new, uh, a brand new approach to classroom, to emphasize these priorities. But we did it in an online format, which is 
definitely it's more powerful and it resonates much better with uh, with some students. We use video scenarios to get riders into into realistic situations, and then we have them start making decisions, identify hazards, predict what's going to happen, make a decision, choose a lane position, choose an escape route, that sort of thing. So it's so it's more interactive and real world, and our. Uh, our, our data so far is, is suggesting that we're going to be turning out better riders because they got better tools to use when they're learning. And, uh, you know, to kind of give the listeners here a little insight onto maybe our experience here, you were kind enough to provide me with some credentials. So I actually completed the entire online module uh, for the basic uh, intro to, the introductory riding program. And I got to say, I was really pleased with it. I thought it had was loaded with good information. There was no dead wood in there for me. I thought everything was valuable. And I did notice some differences. And of course, it's been a few years since I've done the MSF program. Um, You know, just kind of running through sort of the sections there. Now, it's broken down into six sections. So one is riding gear, uh, one is riding controls, one is uh, taking uh, control, the other is riding skills, riding in the real world, and then of course, uh, ready to ride. So those are just kind of the titles of the chapters there. How would you say, um, and you talked a little bit about this, you know, as far as... um, a little more emphasis on maybe not necessarily the basic, you know, clutch and brake skills, but sort of awareness in general. How else would you say that this is different um, than sort of traditional training programs? You know, we we worked uh, with our with our with our other training programs, and particularly this one, to really focus, focus, focus on on there 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 are three types of information. As as a as a training provider, as 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 any expert, there are three types of information you can provide a beginner. Okay, you can provide them need to know information, you can give them nice to know information, and unfortunately, you can make a lot of noise along with this too. And sure. so, so our strategy has been to rake out all of the noise and a lot of the need, uh, a lot of the nice to know information, and stick very closely to what they need to know. But but here's the thing, especially when it comes to new riders, they come they come to our class on Friday night. Okay, by Monday they are out riding. They got their license. They're out riding. So the question that we try to answer is, what do they need to know now? Okay, there's there are a thousand things that we can tell them. We've only got time to tell them about a hundred. So what do they need to know now? And what are the what are the few most important things that they need to know now? And and so that really that that became our priorities. Those became our priorities, and that's how we laid that out. So, for example, riding gear, we know in the Pacific Northwest, if you want to, you can't survive here without decent riding gear. Maybe, that's maybe, true. maybe you can survive for a couple months in the summer, I guess. I don't know. But so it's an important consideration, and and riders, you know, they're they're experienced car drivers. They understand how to use the road. They know the rules and stuff like that. But of what course. they don't understand are the realities of what happens when you're dealing with microclimates and you, you move from a, an area where you're not prepared. You're riding, you're not, uh, you're not prepared with it. So that's an example of one of our priorities. Cornering is another strategic lane positioning and scanning to identify, identify clues and hazards. Those are the things that we focus on, and we give them repeated emphasis through interactive video in the, uh, <clears throat> in the classroom, as you saw. And uh, again, I want to emphasize for our listeners, too, just the quality of the production and the quality of the material as well. One thing, and you mentioned it here, talking about space cushions and that kind of thing, as an experienced rider or a more experienced rider, certainly I've been at it for about five years now, um, that was one thing that really stood out for me, just revisiting what is, in quotation marks here, the basic program. 
I thought there was a lot of good content for experienced riders as far as just situational awareness is concerned. Was that something specifically that uh, you know everybody who was putting together this program, is that something that you guys had discussed internally and really wanted to make an emphasis on? You know, I'm I'm glad to hear that it resonated with you that much. And and um our our focus really was beginners and and what they need to know now. And and by that it's like what what do they need to expect? What are the common things that they're going to see on the road and what are the you know, the best responses for those things? And one of the one of the delights, one of the surprises that we got when we tested this curriculum is that experienced riders like yourself, people who have returned after a long period of time or who've been riding for a while, that they find the activities valuable as as well, which is which is a huge a huge bonus to them because that means that there is something available to them to make riding better, to make their riding experience better if they choose to. That's right. And I would also just note too that uh, as far as ease of use on the interface, because we are seeing now particularly, and we talk to a lot of people here at Sound Rider just out at our events and motorcycle shows and that kind of stuff, a lot of uh, you know, a lot of older people returning to the sport. Uh, I certainly wouldn't let the online portion scare any of them away. In fact, I would say that it's a benefit. It is such an easy-to-use interface, and it is something where you can review over and over again this uh, material at your own pace. Um, I really think it's great just for every rider in general, particularly people who have been in the sport for a long time or who are returning, to come in, plug in, sit down for a few hours. It's really easy to use. The videos are engaging. Um, I can see a lot of benefit there. So well, I, I really, I really appreciate that. That's good to hear. I got a couple questions. Yes, um, question number one is um, the economics of this. You're you're going to be paying for less instructors, but there was a cost on doing the production. When when does this start to pay off and be a better deal economically for the state of Oregon? You know, right now we are we're evaluating. Um, the the effects, the cost savings, or the the cost increase. We don't we don't know which way it's going to go yet. So far, and this is removing the cost of developing this. That's that is sunk. Okay, so we're not going to worry about that. But we're just looking at the day to day operating costs. We have not noticed uh, much of a cost savings yet. But the number of of students that we've had, we've only just begun. So that's that's been that's been very low. So maybe as it, as it increases in volume, as the demand increases, we'll see a better cost savings. But there's a couple things that it will give us. One is that there's a reduced demand for the classroom facilities. Okay. So in theory, that's a cost savings, but even better than that, there's a reduced demand for the instructor time. Okay. So that means there can be more instructors out on the ranges, working with riders on the bikes, which is, you know, where the rubber meets the road, you know, not to not to rub that rub that in too much, sure. but uh, that's going to allow us to to train more and require less time commitment for our instructors, and that that'll be a real benefit too. Whether it's a cost savings, we don't know, but our intention would be, you know, if there is, if it turns out that it's that it's going to save money to uh, to offer online training, we'll probably just reduce the cost of all of our courses across the board. They'll all, they'll all be the same price, but we'll be able to reduce them all if we see a cost savings. Oh, okay. All right, another question. Uh, all this production's been done, and I know that you guys work pretty close hand-in-hand with the STAR people over in Idaho. Is this something that we might see STAR uh, cut a deal with State of Oregon to bring the production over and use it on in their state? 
I would I wouldn't be surprised to see that happen. We've gotten we've gotten several inquiries from other state uh other state uh program providers <clears throat> just recently off the top of my head. I've heard from Michigan and Nebraska and oh one other, but I know that Florida and Idaho are both interested. What's cool about that in in Idaho's example for example, is they use the same sort of course administration system that we do. So, so we've got it. We've got the online classroom integrated into our system. For them, it would it would be almost as easy as just turning a switch if if they chose to. Okay. Uh, last question for me is: uh, my readers on SoundRider uh, might live in Idaho or Washington. Is there a way they can go online and do the program just as uh, as a brush up? I wish I wish there was, but there's not at this time. I I'm anticipating that, and right now I'm focused on on getting this getting this smoothed out for our our beginner and our intermediate riders. But what I do need to do is is pay attention to the the potential demand because because it's there, and I get questions and calls um, often about when it's going to be available for. For me, I've already taken. I've already taken the course. I would just like to do the online classroom, you know, and, and brush up. I'm taking note of that, and then once the once the demand is evident that there's a market for that, then I'm I'm going to release that to the to the world. So anybody in any state or even in any country who wants to learn how to ride a motorcycle well uh, is going to be able to do so at a at a at a very low cost. We we're we're, we're prepared. We're prepared to make that jump when the time comes. Okay. Um, and there's a, a beginner course and an intermediate course online. Yes, we've got. Uh, yeah, we've got both, and it, it, it's the same. It's the same course. It applies to both um, those who are beginner riders and those who are intermediate riders, and they're both approved by the by the state of, of Oregon. So, really, what it is, it's a it's an option. Someone wants to take a course and get their motorcycle license in Oregon, they can take a traditional course, or they can take one with an online classroom. And either way, the uh, the outcome is the same. Gotcha. And so other than opening it up to, uh, you know, other states and hopefully just making it available, it's somewhat like you would uh, a book, right, where you could just kind of find it on Amazon and download the material and review it. What else do you see have in store for the future of the program? I mean, is there any – I mean, what's the initial reception been so far, I should say? Well, the the reception so far has been has been very much like yours. Like, you know, this is cool. This was engaging. I learned a lot from it. Um, we found that uh, actually experienced riders, our intermediate riders, told us that they thought they learned a little bit more from the online classroom than those who took the uh, the traditional classroom, which was which was pretty cool to learn. So, so where where this goes from here, um, I think I think my my sense is that um, having a tool that riders can come back to when they want is a good opportunity for us as an organization and as a culture, as a motorcycle safety culture, to come back and connect with these students, uh, engage them down the line. Hey, you took the course a few months ago. How is it going? Have you thought about coming back and reviewing X, Y, and, and Z? You know, fall is coming up. The daylight is changing. The weather is changing. Right. Maybe you should come back and take a look uh, at the riding gear section again and learn a little bit more about high-vis clothing and preparing for the weather, you know, that sort of thing. I think there's, there are opportunities to create an ongoing, ongoing dialogue with riders that we can use this, we can use this online tool to do that. Well, I think that's a great suggestion. You know, a couple of things spring to mind. One is uh, 
that we speak with so many instructors here um, at SoundRider. And the thing over and over again that they say is, you know, is really <laughs> motorcycling all comes back down to the basics, right? So to have sort of those reminders, sometimes as experienced riders, we forget. And uh, we even might develop bad habits that going through a program like this can really serve as a great reminder. And along, that, along those lines, kind of a note to that, you know, I do a little uh, aviation uh, private, privately. And one thing that we see is accident rates between pilots with zero to 500 hours. That's your highest. And then your next highest tier for accident rates are for pilots with more than 10,000 hours, right? So there's sort right. of a comfort level that goes along. And if you can build this in digitally to kind of remind people yeah. like, hey, you know, we, basic We've things. seen numbers like that with motorcycles as of well. Of course, yeah. And I think that probably applies to any sort of, uh, you know, high risk reward activity. Um, but I think being able to have that sort of built in digital reminder, I think that would be, that would be excellent for everybody in the entire country, any motorcyclist anywhere. Yeah, you know, and, and we are lucky here in the Pacific Northwest. I think our riders get it. I think they, I think they really do. I think they understand, they understand sort of the need for not only constant vigilance, but sort of ongoing training and, and engage, you know, like the, the, the aviation safety industry is a, is a great case in point. I mean, they take it seriously right. and they know when to come back and talk to talk to pilots again and say, look, it's time to come back for more because you're at a point where you are at risk. And and so the Pacific Northwest is going to be a great proving ground, as it has been for the last 20 years, for trying new things in motorcycle safety to see what works and really to drive down the crashes and the injuries and the fatalities. That's that's what we're trying to do. That's our ultimate ultimate goal. And if we can find new ways to affect that in a positive way and make the rotor, uh, the, the motorcycling community safer for it. That's that's where we're, that's the road we're going to take. So so it's those darn Germans coming in and renting bikes and crashing out on 101, huh? That's who's <laughs> keeping the rates up. That was uh, that was really disturbing and sad. I read about that. I read about that yesterday, and um, you know, I hear we hear so many great things about the about the the motorcycling and the driving culture in Europe and, and, and particularly Germany. So I was kind of surprised to hear sort of, I don't know, three riders of like mind all making, all making a similar mistake at the same time. I'm not sure, I'm not sure what to make of that, but it was, uh, it was pretty sad. Yeah. It, it just goes to show again, you know, as hard as you guys work and as hard as state of Washington works and everybody's working on getting their fatality numbers down, it's the out of towners, I, I don't know. You probably know better than I do. What's the percentage of people that don't live in the state that make up the fatality number every year? You know, I don't. I don't know offhand, but it is a significant number. Um, I would say, if we had a year with fifty fatalities, I would say probably three to five of those were folks from out of state. They're typically, yeah. There's a couple. There's a couple that'll happen on the on the Pacific Coast Highway. It's not unusual to have one um, out in the east around the time of the uh, uh, the snake. What's the, the Hell's, Hell's Canyon, Canyon rally? Yeah, Hell's Canyon rally. There's a lot of traveling. There's a lot of traveling going on um, on from there. But yeah, we we always see them all the time. There's visitors from from Idaho or Canada or from uh, you know from from anywhere around the country. We, they they pop up from time to time and and uh, yeah, our our tricky. Pacific Northwest roads, uh, they can they can catch unwary riders really really quickly. Just the 
just the big wins along the gorge um, are something that, that other riders need to prepare for that they may not be ready for. Well, that's absolutely right. And it's absolutely worth it, though, to come out here and ride because some of the best scenery in the world. Now, just to uh, remind our listeners here, uh, Pat, we're going to wrap up here. Uh, where they can find information, where they can find some sample uh, video of the program that's been recently put together here. Yeah, I, I stuck I stuck uh, half a dozen uh, sample videos of what uh, what the, the coolest things that you'll see in the uh, in the online classroom. So, at our our website is is team oregon dot org, and in our our resources on that site, there's a resources page. There's a video library that has uh, that has a lot of cool stuff for anybody who's who's interested in kind of taking a peek. You know, behind the curtain, and see what uh, see what we're offering our our rider training students now. Well, that's excellent. We'll send some uh, listeners over to the website there. Also, be sure to check out soundrider dot com and the upcoming October issue, where I'll have some editorial. Pat Hahn, communications and outreach manager at Team Oregon. Thanks so much for joining us here today in the Soundrider Show. You bet. It was it was fun talking with you both. Thanks for thanks for checking in with us. All right, Pat, and thanks for all the support you guys give us on the rally and the things that we do. And folks, we'll be right back in a moment. Hello, this is Bob Owen from the Soundrider Crew. The Northwest is indeed a great place to ride a motorcycle, both on the pavement and off. But right now, you're listening to the Soundrider Show. Hi, I'm Ellen. My primary bike is a Honda CTX 700, and my favorite ride is Washington Route 101 out to Long Beach Peninsula. We're back, and uh, I just want to say thanks to everybody who came on uh, air with us today, did the interviews. Thanks to uh, Pat Hahn, and and thanks to uh, Bob and Joanne from Gordon's Heated Clothing. Yeah, some great interviews. Really glad that they had a chance to stop by here and a chance to talk to Pat on the uh, phone. Uh, some great programs, some great products, man. It's uh, always great uh, to have local people on, certainly. Yeah, so we we don't uh, we don't end the show here. You know, those of you who listen to the show know we're going to uh, share a couple tips and tricks with you. And uh, Derek, what do you got? Uh, I don't have uh, too much here in the tips and tricks department. Although I would say I'd uh, call back to a couple of weeks ago when I was uh, riding on the way back from the rally in the gorge. I actually had a uh, bumblebee fly up my sleeve. Oh, yeah, that happened. Yeah, Mirac- did it fly into? It flew up my sleeve. Yeah, I yeah, hate that. Yeah, so miraculously, it did not sting me, um, and I was able Ooh. to pull over in time and actually shake it out of my sleeve. But if I'm going to give you tips and tricks this month, uh, it's going to be to Velcro up those sleeves. Well, or get a gauntlet on your glove. You can do that, and too. And then what sure. they do is they go into the gauntlet, and they just sit there and wait for you to take the glove off. That's, yeah. And then I, I took the glove off at, at 6,000 feet down in Oregon one day, yeah. and a darn little guy got onto the top of my wrist and stung the top of my hand. Yeah, that's no good. And my hand turned into a blowfish. Now, strictly speaking, right, they always say that after a bee stings, right, he's supposed to die. But does that mean he can sting multiple times? Or does that no, mean they only have one wants? stinger. Right. Okay. And, and usually by the time they, they've irritated me so bad, I've smashed them. They, they die right away they die when they right sting away. me. Yeah. 
So, uh, yeah, gloves with gauntlets would help. Yeah, but Especially they can still sneak in. In this season here, it's always good to have a little bit longer gloves on, too, as the weather starts to cool down a little bit. So speaking of the weather cooling down and the hot, dry summer we had, one of my tips this week is going to be get out on your motorcycle this month and go and have lunch and buy some gas and help out the economy in a fire-ravaged area. And where is this fire-ravaged area? Well, it depends on where you live. Okay. If you live in California, you've got plenty of choices to go help out the economy of those places. Yeah, half the state, yeah. Uh, Washington, we had fires out on the east side this year and up through the central part of the state. So there's lots of places you could go there. Oregon had a few fires. That's true, yeah. And if you live in any of those areas, I'm sure that you know what those areas are and, and uh, go out and support those people. They had a pretty bad summer. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. And, you know, we still have a lot of great riding days left, so... Make the most of it, right? Pick something that's a little bit further away from home and go out and have some fun. Yeah, yeah. And my other tip is um, if, if you like to fly by the seat of your pants and you think that you're going to just take off from your house someday on a Friday and go and get a hotel room, uh, it ain't going to happen in the summer or in, or in the fall. So my tip is uh, plan a little bit ahead and do some touring on Mondays, leaving on a Sunday Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, those are all nights you can get hotel rooms really easy. They're cheaper, and there's less people out there. Um, on my trip, I didn't see a lot of people at all. That's one of the best things about those weekday tours. I tell you what, nobody's out there. Go out, ride, open roads. Still beautiful country and still a lot of great weather, like I said. And, uh, you know, there's no better time sometimes to take vacation than early fall because of that. All right, folks. Been a good show. Enjoy your October, and we'll see you back here in November. And uh, please, don't ride like my mother. And don't ride like my mother either. We'll see you in November. Happy Halloween. The Sound Rider Show was made possible by today's sponsors and the patience of everyone else involved, which is not to say we're doctors. Reproduction of this program in part or in whole is not legal without the express written consent of the podcast owner. But please be sure to share the link with all your Facebook friends. This program is a production of Mixed Media. The content and views of today's guests do not necessarily reflect the opinions of any major media conglomerate anywhere else in the world, including CBS, NBC, ABC, MotoGP, the BBC, PBS, NPR, the Discovery Network, or the Cartoon Channel. See you next time on The Sound Rider Show.